to enjoy what Hebrews talks about, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And we just thank you, dear God, for that grace that you have provided for us. Uh, Father, would you be with us during this time? Would you be with me as I speak? And um, with those that listen, dear God, Father, our desire is to honor you and to, to really make much of you today. And so, dear God, would you do what only you can do and, and, and multiply what we offer here uh, for your greatness and for your glory. It's in your beautiful name that we ask it. Amen. Amen. So it has become something of an annual tradition here at Lion and Lamb for the elders to preach through a series in the fall. And this year we are teaching through the parables of Jesus. So if you were here a couple weeks ago, Mark uh, Groundhog Ediger got us started <laughs> with uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And then Bill Bider uh, taught last week on the man who had barns and he increased his property. And he said, well, I'm going to tear down these barns and build bigger ones and talked about being rich towards God. I'm going to talk about the parable of the talents from Matthew 25 today. And then Mike is going to come next week and is going to talk about the, the wedding feast and the great banquet. And then Kent will finish us up first week of November, I think, is first week of November, and is going to talk about the parable, parable, excuse me, I'm going to stumble over that word today, the parable of the prodigal son. So we're in week three of five. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to the previous two messages, you can go out on the website. I hope you do that. They were both really good. You can listen to those. And hopefully you come for the next two. So one of my fall traditions is every few years, I reread uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. It's one of my favorite books. And sometimes I will read the entire thing, uh, all three books, and sometimes I will just read one book. This year, I read The Return of the King, just for time-wise, and didn't have an opportunity to read the whole thing. You know, Tolkien was a master, masterful storyteller. If you haven't read the books, I would recommend them to you. One of my children, to my great sorrow, does not like the books. Um, yeah, that's, it was almost an excommunicable offense. But my wife vetoed that, and so she is still part of the family. But yeah. I take every opportunity to remind her um, of her failings in that regard. <laughs> anyway, Tolkien, he created something unique. He created a rich, beautiful world. It's got its own history. It's got its own geography. He created languages for the people that populated his world. I don't know how many times I read it, and I'm still drawn in by the characters and the plot lines. I know what's going to happen, right? But every time, you know, the horn sounds and the riders of Rowan come over, it's just like, yes! Um, for those of you who are fans of the movie, I apologize. I did not like the movies at all. Uh, I thought Peter Jackson did violence to the books, and so uh, hopefully that doesn't diminish me too much in your eyes. But the books were fantastic. I would highly recommend them to you. you know, critics have debated, literary, literary critics have debated whether Tolkien's works were allegorical or not. Tolkien himself gave conflicting answers to that. So you'd ask him and sometimes he would say, yes, it's allegory, and sometimes he would say, no, it's not allegory. But in comparison to C.S. Lewis, you know, he and C.S. Lewis were buds, and they would read each other's stuff. 
not like the Chronicles of Narnia, which was clearly allegory. But whether it was allegory or not, it resonates with, with us, I think, because it points to bigger truths. Whether he meant it to be or not, it points to bigger truths about the world we inhabit and our place in it. It talks about good and evil, and, and it kind of points us to, to larger truths. Now, somebody that preceded both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien by millennia was Jesus. And Jesus was the original master storyteller. And he told stories called parables. And those stories were meant to point us to greater truths about the kingdom. Told stories, parables, that pointed us to things about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In some cases, Jesus used those parables to obscure the truths of the kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew 13, his followers came to him and said, Why do you always teach in parables? And he explained the parable to them and said, Well, to you who belong to the kingdom, it's given to know. But to those who are outside the kingdom, it's not given to know. And so I teach to them in parables so that they don't hear, so they don't see. Okay. But there, for those of us who belong, it's meant to point us to greater truths of the, the kingdom of heaven. So, as I said, we're going to look at the parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25 today. And the parable of the talents in Matthew, it occurs in a section of scripture which is called the Olivet Discourse. And it's called that because it was recorded uh, teaching of Jesus when he was on the Mount of Olives. It was about a week or so prior to his arrest and crucifixion. And the Olivet Discourse is mainly concerned with the end times. So Jesus is walking in the temple and his followers ask him, you know, look, at these, look at these beautiful stones. And Jesus says, well, not one of these stones is going to be left. And Jesus in that is predicting the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 AD. That's a past event. But in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is also talking about things that are future that have not happened yet. So his return and the final judgment that's going to occur at his return if there's an overarching theme to the Olivet Discourse, it, there's a couple of things. One is that the return of Christ is certain. That is a fact. It is going to happen at some time. And so the parables that, are, that occur in this are concerned with what do we do during that time? What are we supposed to be doing? So this parable that we're going to look at today is sandwiched in between the parable of the ten virgins, which is about being expectantly waiting because you don't know the time of Christ's return. And if you remember that parable, there were five virgins that were ready, they had their lamps ready to go, and five that didn't. And the five that didn't, while they were going to buy oil, they missed the kingdom. And it's the, par the parable that immediately follows this one is the parable of the sheep and goats, where Jesus comes back and he separates the sheep and the goats. And he says to one, enter into the eternal kingdom prepared for you, and the other, enter into the lake of fire prepared for you. So it's about, again, that certainty of judgment. So I'm going to read the entire thing. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to go to verse 30. If you're using one of the blue pew Bibles, it's in pages 830 and 831. And I'm reading from the ESV. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. 
To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus begins this parable, he says, it, and, and the it he's referring to is the kingdom of heaven. He says, it will be like a man going on a journey. Now, with 2,000 years of hindsight, we can understand that that journey, he's talking about his ascension. And the journey part is the, we're in now. We're waiting for the, for the return of Christ. The man represents Jesus, and before he departs, he calls his servants to him, and he entrusts his possessions to him. And so the first thing I want to point out is that the man, uh, he gave his possessions entrusted them to his servants. So these were not gifts. The man retained ownership of them. So this was something that there was an expectation that the servants were going to manage on behalf of the master. It wasn't like he just said, here, here's this, this gobs of money, go and do whatever you want with it. And that, wasn't the, that wasn't the sense of it. It was here, I'm entrusting you with my possessions and you're gonna go and do something with them. And so, you know, it illustrates the point that Christ owns everything. That we're given things, but he retains ownership of them. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. You know, Paul, in talking to the Corinthian church in, in chapter 6 and 7, he says, You've been bought with a price. So our bodies are purchased, our bodies are possessions of Christ. And so we should live a certain way. We should manage our bodies on behalf of the one who purchased us. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving, 
your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. So everybody take a deep breath. Let it out. Take another one. Okay? That breath belonged to God. You took those two breaths because God determined you would. And you're going to keep taking breaths, and your heart is going to keep beating because God determines that you will. That belongs to God. And so, I, you know, I think it's easy to assent to that, right? Say C.S. Lewis, yeah, you're right. I agree with that. that. That's wisdom. And even Paul, yeah, Paul was right. The hard part is living that way, right? That's always where the rubber meets the road. Do, do we live that way? If I'm being honest, no, I don't always live that way, right? We're in church, so I'm not going to lie to you guys. Um, hopefully I wouldn't lie to you anyway, but... You know, a good diagnostic is to ask yourself, what is it that I consistently fight with Christ about for control? For me, it's time, right? It's time. So, so I think I have the right to manage my schedule. I think I'm a pretty good manager of my schedule, and I should be able to set what I do for the day and where I'm going to go. And, and I can be resentful sometimes when people or things intrude on that schedule. My wife is over here shaking her head. Um, okay. But here's the thing. The more I try to manage my schedule, the more there seem to be interruptions to my schedule. The less things I get done that I want to get done, the more things I get pulled away from. So it, it is in giving up that schedule you know, if I, I have a much better day when I, when I start the day saying, God, I have these things I need to get done, but here's your, here's your schedule. And whatever you want to do with that, that's what I want. And I, I honestly mean that. You know what? Guys, God is so gracious and he is so good that on those days I'm way more productive. Even if there's interruptions, I get way more done. And God is so good that he builds in time, me time, right, which I'm entitled to. Uh, I get time to rest. I get time to reset. When, I, when I'm so busy fighting with God over this, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do this, it, things just go badly. And so it, it, is in, it is in giving up that control. Because listen, here's the thing. Does God own my schedule? Yes. Right? We talked to somebody about, uh, about Jonah earlier. Jonah was going to Nineveh. Right? He was going by boat or he was going by fish. But the Jonah was going to Nineveh. Right? There was, there, was no, there was no choice there. God said, go to Nineveh. And he said, I'm going to Tarshish. And God said, well, no. Actually, you're going to Nineveh. Uh, so you decide how you want to do it. So my fighting with God over my schedule is, is just illusory. And, and it's the same way. That, you know, we, we want to control things and we don't control because God owns everything. So there's a question on your study sheet. I would encourage you, you know, a diagnostic, go through that this week maybe and see what is it that you're fighting with God about? What is it that you're, that you're wanting to keep control over? So God owns everything and, and he expects me and you to manage it. Going on in the parable, we see that the manager, or the, the man, 
He gave talents according to each servant's ability. So he knew what they were capable of. Now, a talent in those days was, a talent in this day is a huge sum of money, but, and then it was a princely sum. So a talent could be made of silver or gold was more commonly what they were made of. It was about 75 pounds of material, whichever one it was. So in today's dollars, one talent would have been around $1.2 million. That's one talent, okay? And I can't do public math, so the guy that got five was like six, six million-ish or so. Um, just an enormous sum of money that he handed over. Another way is to look at it as a, t- a single talent was worth 6,000 denarii, and a denarii was the average day's wage for a laborer. So you're talking 6,000 of those, about 20 years worth of wages for somebody. Almost a lifetime, given the lifespans of people in the first century. Just enormous sums of money. And he, and he handed over these for them to manage based on his knowledge of their ability to, to manage that sum of money. Now, we live in a hyper-egalitarian world, and so the idea that people have different abilities, that have different capabilities, is just anathema to us. We don't want to entertain that idea that, that everybody's different, and that God may give you things to do that he doesn't give somebody else to do, because he knows that there's a difference. And so we, in our 21st century mindset, might want to look at that and say, well, that's not fair. How come everybody didn't get five talents, or how come everybody didn't get two talents? And it's actually the mercy of God that they didn't. So the, the master is setting them up for success because he knows the guy that had five talents is going to be able to manage that well. I'm not going to give him something that he can't manage. The guy that got two talents, I know that he can manage that well. We're going to talk about the guy that got the one talent later on. The, the point for us is that God has uniquely gifted us to do certain things. And there's things that God has uniquely gifted you to do that I can't do. So let me give you an example from my, my Air Force days. So I, when I was stationed at McConnell, I would sometimes talk to young airmen who were going through the first level of professional military education. And we would talk about you had to go through this to become a non-commissioned officer. And these were guys that hadn't been in the Air Force very long, and so they really had no clue about how they fit into the mission. And so we would talk about how do you fit into the mission, both of the Air Force and of the 22nd Air Refueling Wing, which was at McConnell. So the mission was to launch tanker aircraft so that they, either on a training sortie or a live mission, so that they could go refuel some other kind of aircraft. And so how do we all fit into that? And so we talk about, go around, well, where do you work? What, what specialty do you have? And inevitably, we'd get to somebody that worked at a dining facility or somebody that worked at a, a fitness center. Something is so far removed, seemingly, from the flight line. You know, there'd be maintainers in there, and there'd be air traffic controllers in there. And it was easy for those guys to say how I connect to the Air Force. But the guy that was the cook or the, was handing out towels it was difficult for them. And so I would tell them, you know what? Air crews like to eat. 
Um, air crews like to eat. And in fact, there's a thing called a flight kitchen, which is actually on the flight line. And they make boxed lunches for the air crews to take on the aircraft with them because they don't always bring their own food. And if you're on a five or six hour mission, you get hungry. And as a matter of fact, if, the, if something occurs at the flight line kitchen where it's closed, uh, that gets briefed to the group commander because it's a big deal because flight crews are also whiny. <laughs> and so when they don't get fed, guess who gets a call? The group commander gets a call and then the squadron commander gets a call and then the supervisor at the flight kitchen gets a call and, and guess what? The flight kitchen gets opened. Um, so I said, yeah, what you do is important. You know, everybody has to be fit. Uh, it was a requirement in the Air Force. So you're providing a service for air crews to get fit, you're contributing to the mission. You know, the point of all that is, no matter where we find ourselves, if you're, if you're single or you're married, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, you have, you have small kids, and, you're, and your sphere of influence seems small, um, it's not, it's important. There, there, are no, there were no small jobs in the Air Force, is what I tell them, and there are none in the kingdom of heaven. So wherever we are, we need to manage what we've been given well. Because that's the point. That's what, as we're going to see, that's what we get judged on. What have you been given, and how are you managing that? Now, two of the servants turned out to be really, really good money managers because they doubled their profits. And so I want to look at what they did because it would behoove us to kind of emulate that. Now, the text doesn't give us explicit, tell, doesn't tell us explicitly what they did. And so we have to infer some things. So, excuse me. So hopefully we can use our sanctified imaginations and and I won't wander into the realm of heresy in any of this. Um, but the first thing, so again, right, we said the one that had five talents, about $6 million, he doubled that. So he made $12 million or, or 10 talents. So think in a first century economy, that would have been, that's a lot of money now to double. And we don't, we don't know the time frame that he had to double it. But it was, a t it was a lot of money now, and it would have been a ton of money then. So what did they do? I think one of the things is they understood, they understood their role, and they understood their responsibility. So the text doesn't record that the man gave them instructions on what to do. It doesn't say he told them go out and do this or go out and do that. Now, if I'm going to, when we leave our house, and have somebody water my plants, I give detailed instructions about how to water my plants. So the master entrusted five talents to somebody and it doesn't record any, any instructions that he gave them. So these guys knew, they knew they were servants and they knew what their role was. They knew they were supposed to be going out and making money for the master. They understood what they were supposed to be doing. It's, it, we can't, they weren't out there freelancing. They weren't out there, well, I, I'm, I'm going to do this or that. And, and we can't freelance either. So the question is, do we understand our role? Do we understand what it is? Listen, there are, there are so many things that compete 
for our time and our attention that, that focusing on what we should be doing can be difficult sometimes. There's lots of good things that we can be involved in. Or do we understand that we're supposed to be doing things that profit the master? Do we understand what our role as servants are, is? And are we putting the effort into it? Because it would have taken, it would have taken a lot of effort to make that kind of money. It would have taken diligence on their behalf. Right? To turn five talents into ten, those guys would have had to hustle. They would have had to work. And again, they had been given seed money, so they had a good start. But it's not like you can invest in Amazon when it was trading at 15. And then you just let it ride and the master comes back and you just hand him this portfolio with a gazillion dollars. Look what I did. Look what I did. The first century it would have taken it would have taken a lot of effort, sustained effort, to do that. And this it's the same with us. And Mike taught through um, was t- teaching through Peter to be diligent, right? Second uh, Peter one three through eleven, it, it illustrates this principle. Peter says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So in a sense, God, God gives us seed, seed money. His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. God sets us up on a glide path, right? Everything that we need for life and godliness. But then Peter says, with make every effort. Uh, some translations say applying all diligence. The, the sense of the Greek term is hustle, work sweat to add these virtues to your faith. And at the end of that, Peter says that if you do these things, if you add these virtues, and if they're increasing, they render you neither unfruitful or useless in your knowledge of Christ. And that's the goal. We, want, we don't want to be useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. We want to be fruitful. We want to add to the Master's glory and uh, Pardon me, I just lost my train of thought. We want to add to the master's profit. Now, doubling their money would have involved some risk. Taking some risks and accepting some risks. What, what if they had bought livestock that didn't produce or if they had invested in crops that something happened to them? Um, we live in a risk-averse society. Safetyism is, is the guiding mantra of our, of our culture. There, can't, there has to be zero risk in almost every area or we can't undertake it. Okay, it's one of the reasons, I'm not going to get on a soapbox, but it's one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in now is because people are just not willing to accept risk. And unfortunately, it, life just doesn't work that way. So in order for us to get out into the marketplace, in order for us to trade with what we've been given, there's going to be some risk involved to us. Now, I think we're years away from the kind of physical persecution that most of the other world, the church experiences in different parts of the world. But there is a risk to getting out there. You could be rejected, you could be, there's social pressure to not say something. But if we're going to be fruitful 
if we're going to be productive for the master, we have to accept, we have to accept the risk. We have to be willing to take the risks. Now, again, as I said, I, I'm not a prophet. I, I, I couldn't tell you when persecution will come or if it will come. I think that we are going to see increasing clashes between the biblical worldview of sex and gender and the culture's new orthodoxy on that. Uh, that's going to be a flashpoint in the future if I'm predicting something because those are two irreconcilable views. There, there is no common ground there. Either we can, we can say we are who we are or God says who we are. There's no, there's no difference there. But whatever it is, you know, now is the time to determine what risk you're willing to accept. Now is the time to set your mind for the fact that there may come a day when it is risky, when I could be arrested, when I could be beaten. And now is the time for you to determine, while we're still in relative safety, is determine that I'm going to take that risk. For the sake of doing the master's work, I'm going to take that risk, and I'm going to get out into the marketplace, and I'm going to trade with what I've been given. You know, another element of risk is, so let's be honest, people are not beating down the church's door, right? As, as Christianity recedes from the culture's consciousness, we've talked before about the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, uh, that people are just walking away from the faith. And, and some of that is predicted in the scripture, uh, that there will be apostasy in the last days. People will walk away. So some of that is predicted. But you know, people are not, they're not beating down our door to hear the message. And so we may have to get creative. We, we may have to let go of some of our sacred cows in Christianity. We may have to, we may have to do things that make us uncomfortable, get in situations that make us uncomfortable. Talk to people that make us uncomfortable. We might have to risk our, our reputations to, to go out and to spread the good news and to share the gospel. Because you know what? There is just rampant chaos and confusion out there. And I get it. It's tempting to, to pull up the drawbridge and, and let the barbarians do whatever they're going to do out there. And we'll be fine in here. And... We'll, we'll, we'll just kind of hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back. And yeah, it's, it's tempting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The more, the, more, the more you see, it's like, yeah, pull that drawbridge up, buddy. That's, uh, that is the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. It's the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. We, we should be running. We should be running out to the fire, so to speak, running out to the marketplace where it's just absolute chaos. But some of that may take doing things differently. Some of that may take trying new things that we're not comfortable with. Nobody likes change. Me, I'm the same way. I don't like to change things. But it may, that may be a risk that we have to take so that people can hear the gospel. And looking at the two good slaves, the last thing I want to say about them is their motivation for doing what they did and for, for working for the master. 
No, they could have been motivated by fear. I don't think so, because the third slave, he was condemned for that. I don't think it was fear. It could have been rank duty. It could have been obligation that they, they felt like they needed to do that. Sometimes we do things out of just duty and obligation. I know what I need to do. But that was a lot of money. And that would have taken a lot of effort to double. I think it was motivated by a great love and a great appreciation for their master. Now, these guys were servants. And servants in the first century had no expectation that their master was going to reward them. So going in, when Jesus is telling this parable, the people that that heard it, there was no expectation that these guys were going to get rewarded for anything. Now, the master was good, and so potentially they would have. But they wouldn't have gone in it with that expectation. So what is it that motivates somebody to work that hard for the potential of a reward? Not a, not a guarantee. And I, and I want to submit that it is love. That it was, they knew that their master was so good and so gracious that they were willing to sacrifice and do whatever it took to make money for him, to make profit for him. A lot of you in your small groups you probably have read, I think all the small groups actually either are going through or have gone through Gentle and Lowly. And we've talked about that book here. Again, I highly recommend it to you. It's not as good as Lord of the Rings, but it's, it's pretty good. But one of the things that that book did for me is in going through it and, and hearing those truths about, this is really how Christ feels about you. This is really how Christ views you. And you know what? It stirred my affections. It stirred my affections for Jesus. It made me want to as Paul says, to live a life worthy of the gospel. It made me want to please my master. It made me want to hear, well done, well done, not well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And to do, to, to get rid of those things, to, to want to serve him because of his great love for me. Right? It motivates us. And so, whether it's that book or you go through the Gospels or you do those things that meditate, that make you meditate and think on the goodness of God. Right? On any given day, there are probably millions of things that God saves you from and that are God's goodness. Right? The sun came up this morning. It was great. We got some rain. Anybody look at the beautiful colors out there? It's absolutely gorgeous. Right? All that God did for his children. Right? If you belong to Christ, you have been saved from the power of sin and death. You're, you're untouchable. You know, all of those things, we meditate on them and they stir our affections for Christ and they make us want to work harder for our Master because we know He's good and He's gracious and He loves us. And so we should want to do whatever it takes to bring him glory and honor. So, two good, ser- good servants worked hard for their master. And we're going to jump ahead a little bit because I want to talk about the, the unfaithful servant. And he's really, he's really a, 
a pitiable character because it's a squandered opportunity. So the master gave each according to their ability. And even though they didn't get the same amounts, everybody got an equal shot. Everybody got an equal opportunity to succeed. So we say the gospel is a free and open call to whoever will come, whoever will believe, right? And it was the same way with, with this guy. He, he, even though he was given one talent, he was given the same opportunity to succeed as the other one. And he buried it, literally. He didn't take advantage of the opportunity that the master had given him. And his reason was he had a false view of his master. He said his master was cruel and conniving. He took advantage of people for his own gain. He reaped where he didn't sow. Uh, this guy was a, essentially, this guy's a thief. He's telling his master, you're a thief, so I buried what you gave me, and here it is. You've given it back. And the master exposes his lie because he says, well, if you... If you, the master didn't refute what he said, but if you believe that about me, then you should have given it to the bankers so that I got, would have gotten interest. If that's what you really believed about me, you should have done, you didn't do the bare minimum. You should have done the bare minimum. It, it wasn't that his master was wicked. It's that the servant had contempt. It wasn't he was scared of him. He had contempt for him. There... There's a companion parable in the Gospel of Luke. And commentators go back and forth as whether it was the same parable, just told a different way, or whether it's a completely different parable. But, but Jesus expands, in Luke he expands on that a little bit. And he talks about a man who went to go receive his kingdom, and he comes back, and there's some in the kingdom who say, we don't want you to be king over us. We don't want you to be king over us. All right, go away. We, we're, we're not interested in you being king. We don't want what you're selling. Um, you know, that, that is the attitude of the wicked slave, and it's the attitude of those who are outside the kingdom, who are not going to believe. The offer is free, and some are just going to reject it. I'm not interested in what you have. And as we find, that ended up costing him. That was a, that was a fatal mistake on his part. And it will be for those that reject God's free offer. So the master comes back and he settles accounts with his servants. And so what we, we find from this is that there's going, to be, there's going to be an accounting for everybody. The good servants and the wicked servants. And I like this part because one of the things that irritates me so much about the culture that we live in is that it seems there's no accountability. Uh, people just get away with crazy stuff. Actually, people get rewarded for crazy stuff in the world that we live in. And it just, it just drives me nuts. Um, so there's a comfort and there's a warning here, right? Nobody gets away with anything in the end result. When the master comes back, he settles accounts. But guess who he settles accounts with first? The good servants, you and me, we get, we get, the, we get to settle accounts first. You know, part of, one of the, aside from Matthew 7.22, the, the second scariest section in the scripture is 1 Corinthians 3, where it talks about that your works will be judged. 
and they'll be judged by fire. And whatever you've built is going to be judged. And if you built with good things, you built with gold and silver and precious stones, that that stuff is going to survive the fire and you'll be rewarded for it. But if you've built with hay, wood, stubble, and straw, that stuff is going to get burnt up. And if that's all you've built with, everything that you built is going to get burned up. You yourself will be saved, Paul says, but you'll be saved as somebody who escapes from a fire with just the clothes on your back. Right? You're going to get to go to heaven, but it's going to be with just the clothes on your back. And so as we look at our lives, what are, what are we building with? All right? Another, another scary verse is when Jesus says that you're going, to have an, you're going to give an account for every careless word. Right? It makes me want to walk around like this. Okay? We're going to give an account. What are, we, what are we building with? What are we building with? What, what am I doing in my daily life? What are you doing in your daily life that is contributing to the glory of the Master? What's going to survive? Focus on those things those things. This parable points out that the master is good and he's gracious and that he rewards proportionally. And so what I mean by that is, as we said, we're all unique, we're all distinct, and there's things that you've been called to do and there's things that I have been called to do. Well, Jesus is not going to hold me accountable for something that Rick was called to do. In the same way, he's not going to hold Rick accountable for something he called me to do. Right? He didn't say to the man who had two talents, why didn't you make ten? This guy made ten. How come you couldn't make ten? He, just, he didn't say that. He said, you were faithful in what I gave you to do, and so well done, good and faithful servant. So it's not about, it's not about what... Somebody else is supposed to be doing, it's what are you supposed to be doing? That is what you're going to be judged and rewarded for. And then I want to close with this. Both times to the good servant, the master said, enter your master's joy. Some translations say share your master's joy. You know, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that because of the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Well, what was that joy? What was that joy? It, it was that one day he was going to present his bride, blameless, spotless, without blemish, and that when he returned... He was going to gather his bride to him. We're all going to go to the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's going to be a time where there's no more sin. There's no more death. There's unbroken fellowship with God. There's unbroken fellowship with each other. That was the joy set before him. That he was redeeming a people for himself that he could present to God. Look at my beautiful bride. And we need to remind ourselves of that, right? Because we look at each other, I am a hot mess. On my best day, I'm a hot mess. But you, if you belong to the body of Christ, you are someone who Christ died for, who he says about, this is my beautiful bride, and it is my joy 
for you to enter into that eternity with him. One day, my prayer is for all of us is that we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That is going to be a great day. So I'm going to ask the worship band to come up. And if you would stand, we're going to read from Colossians chapter 3, um, verses 23 and 24. So, all right, let's read. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ.